0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, Practicing the Way, Simplicity. Jesus spoke often about the corrupting danger of wealth and possessions. Today, his teaching reads as a prophetic indictment of American affluence, leaving modern Christians to grapple with the ramifications of having money and stuff. But how do we put the uncompromised teaching of Jesus into practice in such a way that it can be read on a bank statement? If you're just joining us for a few weeks now, we've been in a series and a set of practices revolving around the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity. Next week, the plan is that we'll take a short break from the series as we prepare for Easter, and then we'll return to the series to finish things up in April. But tonight, we're going to revisit a story from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Let's read beginning with verse 16. Are you guys okay? Are you right? You're here? You're alive? Great, thank you. Matthew 19, beginning with verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What a question. This dude isn't asking about a trip to heaven for his ghost, just for context. He's not asking about, like, hey, how do I get a good afterlife? He is a Jewish man who shares a commonly held Jewish expectation about a coming kingdom and a coming king. And he's heard tell of this fellow called Jesus. That's the context and setup for this little story. Now, here's a guy, this fellow says to himself, in reference to Jesus, here's a guy, he says to himself, that might have an in on the whole kingdom of God thing. I've heard good things. I'm going to go ask him about it. He wants to be on the inside of the whole kingdom of God thing. Now... If we know Jesus, and I think we do, he should say something like this. He should say, What good thing must you do? You don't have to do anything. Perish the thought. Salvation is a gift. Justification by faith through grace. Man, good news. Have a nice life. Say a prayer. So let's fact check, shall we? Verse 17. Jesus replies, why do you ask me ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, notice that Jesus has revised the man's verb. The man asked, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus tells him, here's how you enter life. The man, this is a subtlety in the literary world, but the man wants a transaction. One scholar I read said that Jesus transfers the man from a market to a road. He wants an exchange. Jesus tells him how he can enter along a path. And interestingly, Jesus' proposed method of entering life is to, of all things, keep the commandments. So he doesn't say what he was supposed to say. Now, you and I, that's a joke, by the way. Jesus is always right just for reference. Now, you and I, we're not first century Jews. We have the teachings of Jesus. We have the Sermon on the Mount, which is, we believe, the clearest revelation of God's desire, Jesus' way of life. But for this guy, Jesus begins with the law, a baseline way of life for ancient Israel to live as God's covenant people in relationship with God. But if you know the story, there are a lot of those laws, some 600 plus to be a little more exact. So, look at verse 18, which ones the man inquired, which is a fair question. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of weird. Jesus cites a handful of the Ten Commandments six, seven, eight, nine, and five, if you're counting. And interestingly, the commandments that Jesus highlights are the commandments that address human relationships rather than divine relationships. Why is Jesus emphasizing the treatment of other people here? Let's find out, verse 20. "All these I've kept," the young man said. "What do I still lack?" Verse 21. Jesus answered, "If you want to be perfect." Go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So there's a twist to the story. And the twist is that this guy is rich, very rich, apparently. And his great wealth, Jesus says, is that barrier between the man and and the kingdom of God. What do I still lack? You have not sold everything you have and come to follow me yet. Now, there weren't a ton of truly rich people in Jesus' world, so this gentleman was probably well known, well connected, and scholars suspect that he's probably come to Jesus winking in a sense. He's like, oh, hey, teacher. I'm a well-connected dude. You're a well-connected dude. If you are the Messiah, what's it going to take for me to be in on the inside? Name your price, teacher. Which is why Jesus does exactly that. He names a price. But the price is everything. And it is to be paid, not to Jesus, but to the poor, And this is a price simply too high for this rich man to pay. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, but don't think of that as an unrealistic invitation. He's telling him something that he can't possibly do. The Greek word that Jesus used isn't exactly the way that we use the English word perfect. We hear perfect and we think without error of any kind. But the way Jesus uses it is more like if you want to be brought to full maturity or if you want to be complete or whole. He wants this man to redistribute his wealth and his possessions, not destroy it. It should, in Jesus' mind anyway, be given over to the poor. All of it. If you want to be perfectly mature, if you want to be complete, and now we learn in the story that this man does not actually keep the heart of the law the way that he claimed. His love for his stuff overpowers his love for God and for other people. Jesus tells this rich God that if he can somehow part with all of his wealth, give it away to the poor, then he will learn what it means to actually be rich. And this is not the whole satanic prosperity gospel thing, which the idea there being, if you pay God, God pays you back and you get even more. Make a big donation so God can give you even more stuff and you'll be even more rich. Notice There's more than just the command to abandon his wealth. Jesus doesn't say, you know, give all your stuff to the poor and that's it. He says his final words are, then come and follow me. So the idea is not just give up all your money and stuff. It's give up your entire way of life so that you can come and follow me. This likely well-known, well-connected and rich man is being invited to a wealthless life on the road with a poor peasant itinerant rabbi. And you can read that as Jesus' typical high ask. He does that a lot, and it is. But look at it this way. Jesus is actually welcoming this man into his inner circle, into his community. This is an invitation for which some people have pleaded throughout the gospels, an invitation that the 12 accepted by abandoning everything they knew. So eager they were to accept Jesus' call to follow. So yes, give up everything, but then follow me. You are in. You won't have to figure this out alone. I will walk with you and teach you every day. Jesus is closing the circle between his first and final statement. His first statement, why do you ask me what is good? And then his final statement, come follow me and I will show you. If you want to know what's good, if you want to know God himself, follow me, Jesus says. And this rich man will not do it. Now, maybe you're thinking it must have been a heart issue, which is a kind of a Christian platitude we have around these parts, these parts being the church. A heart issue, unique to this particular rich man. So to provoke us, us, the reader, Jesus goes on in verse 23, look down. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you want this to hit even harder, one translator I read this week rendered that first line from Jesus, amen, I tell you, it will be practically impossible for a well-off person to get into the kingdom of God. A camel was the biggest, most burdensome, common animal in ancient Palestine, and Jesus is creating this absurd and, frankly, discouraging word picture to emphasize just how noteworthy a hindrance wealth is to those hoping to enter the kingdom. He goes on in verse 25, As the story goes on in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Which is weird. Why does the intensity of this teaching surprise the disciples? Jesus has already addressed the corrupting evil of wealth and possessions in his sermon on the mount all the way back in chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you remember, Jesus had the whole you cannot serve both God and money. You can only love one and hate the other. That's how extreme Jesus' language was. You will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. Other, you cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus' teaching isn't some kind of wild new development in the New Testament. It's, a, it's in line with the ancient Hebrew tradition of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the rich are often depicted as the bad guys or the oppressors, while the poor are depicted as, the, as those who receive Yahweh's unique attention and concern. In Psalm 9, we read, The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God, but God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. And Psalm 12, Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says Yahweh. I will protect them from those who malign them. Psalm 14, You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Or look at this long one from Isaiah. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure. Lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you. In a moment, on a single day, loss of children and widowhood, they will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there's none besides me. Disaster. Will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom, you cannot pay your way out of it. A catastrophe you cannot see will suddenly come upon you. And what good will all your comfort and money be then? Really, we could go on and on and on with scriptures like these. The question of why Jesus' hardcore teaching comes as any surprise, frankly, baffles commentators who can only conclude this, the reason the disciples are astonished is because the myth that to be rich is to be happy was as pervasive then as it is today. Everyone wants to be rich. Everyone assumes, if only subconsciously, that if they had more money and more stuff, they would be at least a little bit more happy, if not way more happy. It's why we fantasize about winning the lottery or why we play games with the hypothetical question. What would you do with a million dollars? Everyone assumes more money and more stuff is better than less money and less stuff. So Jesus answers his disciples' astonishment in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, meaning a rich person entering the kingdom. But with God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But with God, all things are possible. This is Jesus' trademark discouragement as encouragement. Jesus is saying, look, you can't pull this off one way or another. It's actually impossible. The only reason... Anyone, rich or poor, can be rescued from death, is that God has made a way for it to happen. In this sense, it's no more impossible for a rich man to lay down his false God than it is for any of us to lay down our old ways of life, die, and come to follow Jesus. In theology, we call this pervenient grace. It's the idea that all of us were dead. It was impossible for us to be reconciled to God, to whom we were enemies. But God woke us up, all of us, not just a special arbitrary few, and God created a way for us to be able to accept that seemingly impossible invitation of Jesus come, die, follow me. So, here's a problem with this text, and it's a big one. We do not want to see ourselves in this rich man. Sure, we don't want to reject the gospel, walk away from Jesus, but that's not what I mean. We don't want Jesus to ask us to part with our money and our stuff and follow him. And honestly, for years, whenever I've looked into this text, I've heard people rushing to the same points. First, they say, Jesus doesn't ask all his disciples to sell everything, which is true, he doesn't. Peter still has a house in the story. Some of the fishermen still have boats, for example, to which they return after they believe Jesus is dead for good. Heck, even the villainous tax collectors turned disciples, they aren't commanded to get rid of everything. So, citing all of these true things, some kind of wag their worried finger at the text and say, see, see, we don't all have to get rid of our stuff. And they breathe a shivering sigh of relief. But in his commentary on this passage, scholar R.T. France argues that these points are relevant, but he goes on to say this. There is, however, an undeniable element of self-justification in such exegesis of this passage by the wealthy, a category which, in comparative terms, includes almost all Western readers of the gospel, meaning, that's us. Bruner, another scholar, argues the same, writing, we believe that Jesus intends every disciple in every generation to hear this command to the rich man as a command to them to do something with their assets that will indicate that their discipleship to Jesus is real. All of us are addressed by Jesus in this story at the point of our possessions and are asked to say, is it I, Lord? Readers should be careful to avoid the particularist." Only the rich man interpretation of our text. In every disciple, something needs to change economically if we are to follow Jesus' word with integrity. Finally, this is my favorite one. You guys ready for this one? Wonderful candidness. Robert Gundry puts it like this. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possession gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. That we want an escape hatch from this passage makes perfect sense. We're Americans. Affluence is the air that we breathe. So here's our problem. No, Jesus does not ask every one of his disciples to divest every cent, to sell everything and give to the poor. He could have, but he didn't. Having money and things is not inherently wrong. In fact, well-off disciples with the maturity to hold their resources with open hands have historically enabled the church to thrive through their generosity, through financial divestment. Having money and stuff is not inherently wrong, but it is inherently dangerous. Like alcohol or sex or food, money can be wielded sinlessly. It can, but It can oh so easily corrupt your very soul. Throughout all four Gospels, when we hear stories of Jesus approaching someone, whoever they are, wherever they are, and calling them, hey, come follow me, in every case, they drop their nets, they abandon their boats, they leave behind careers and lifestyles and worldviews. In every case, that is, except one one story this story the rich man. In all the Gospels, every time Jesus says, follow me, unlikely people up and follow him. The only thing depicted in the Gospels as an insurmountable obstacle to accepting the call of Jesus is money and possessions. And notice, the text doesn't accuse this man of using his money and resources to do injustice. In fact, some scholars assume that given the great value for poor relief amongst first century Jews, He could have been a charitable type of person. The text doesn't say that he was stingy or debauched or scandalous with his great wealth. All we know is that he has it. All we know is that he has it and he doesn't want to give all of it away. This likely strikes us as reasonable. Not wanting to give up all of one's money and possessions and way of life but it is depicted here as greatest among obstacles to entering the kingdom of God. One theologian puts it this way, to be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told that it's not wealth or power that's the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear. Wealth is a problem, Scottish philosopher, philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre observed that riches are, from a biblical point of view, an affliction, an almost insuperable obstacle in entering the kingdom of heaven. And lest you or I excuse ourselves from this conversation, keep in mind that most, if not all of us, are rich compared to a huge swath of the world population. I think a common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth and affluence because the single person or the young family or the college student surviving on ramen imagines themselves poor, though their lifestyle would be considered luxurious to most of the world. The upper class observes the wealthier, super rich, and they think of themselves as poor. The middle class observes the upper class, and they think of themselves as poor, and on down the economic ladder. And yet, if you eat food on a dependable basis, or drive a car, or live in a home, or frequent restaurants, or decorate your house, or enjoy basic creature comforts, or even just one or two of those things, you are rich by a global standard. Again, this... From Frederick Dale Bruner, he writes, Jesus' word overpowers every other occupation and preoccupation, but money is so powerful that it alone can resist Jesus' word. This story is put in the gospel to warn us of the demonic power of money and real estate. This man's problem and ours is not great wealth, which is true of only a few of us. It is many things, which is true of almost all of us in the West. To quote Jesus, You cannot serve both God and money. You must love one and despise the other. And make no mistake, this passage is about money and possessions specifically, but it does speak to a deeper truth that keeps us from freedom. Haueros notes, Our temptation is to think that Jesus' reply is intended to let us off the hook, the whole with God, all these things, uh, everything's possible. Being a rich person, we may think, But God will take care of us, the rich, the only way God can. Yet, such a response fails to let the full weight of Jesus' observation about wealth have the effect it should. Jesus' reply challenges not only our wealth, but our very concept of salvation. To be saved means that our lives are no longer our own. Concern for wealth and possessions does not always manifest itself in lavish lifestyles and opulent households. It could be the fretful anxiousness with which you handle your money or worry about more of it. A Kind of nervous penny-pinching or hoarding a savings account. Big plans for financial safety and security under the guise of being a responsible adult. And don't get me wrong, being financially responsible is a very good thing. But the problem is that Jesus does not call his disciples to financial stability or security. He calls them to radical generosity. He calls them to let go. Jesus calls his disciples to the kind of generosity that will often seem reckless and irresponsible to the world or to the Dave Ramsey programs and five-year career plans. The context in which you and I live is set up to keep us blind to the way that money and possessions corrupt us. The Western mind wants badly to simply drift in the warm, gentle current of its own financial imagination. Money and stuff is good, we're told. More money and more stuff is better. We don't owe anyone our money and stuff. It's our money and stuff. The disciple of Jesus has to maintain a deliberate and concentrated sobriety, drag themselves up out of the lazy undertow, and deny both themselves and the status quo. No, we say. Jesus, the king taught us to hold our money and possessions in open hands. They do not belong to us. They are not to be exhausted on our appetites, on our plans. They are not to be hoarded for our perceived longevity. They are to be redistributed in the name of generosity and justice to the poor, to those in need, for justice causes, local and around the world, for kingdom causes, for the church. I think... Personally, talking about simplicity without generosity or vice versa misses an important component of spiritual formation. Frustrating thing is there seem to be so few reasonable voices of practicality. You've got the rip, rich, hip, megachurch pastors going on about simplicity in theory, but then leading obvious Instagram lavish lifestyles. Or you have, like, you know, the, pro- the, the poverty gospel people of the world going on about simplicity, but then they have, like, dreadlocks and wear a burlap sack for clothes, you know. And you're, you're thinking, can we not split the difference? Must we all go full burlap? But true generosity is... <laughs> I was thinking about one of these communities with the stereotypical burlap people. They had like a toilet powered by, I stopped at one in Philadelphia one time, they had a toilet powered by like a bike and stuff. I was like, that's neat. I don't know about the toilet with the bike personally, but anyway. <laughs> True generosity is, I think, by its very nature, a self sacrificial gesture. It's what sets it apart from the minimalism self-help fad, which is all about you, a better lifestyle for you, making you more happy. Simplicity is about radical generosity and self-sacrificial love. If your simplicity and your generosity doesn't cost you something, and if it doesn't cost you something that you feel, then there's probably another word to describe it. That's just called decency or basic kindness, or that's called pragmatism. But how do you live simple, self-sacrificial generosity without necessarily going full burlap sack? You can if you want, or, you know, the, the toilet bike. So with my last few minutes, let me just offer with humility some ideas that have been helpful for me and my family. We've worked out over the years through trial and error, and you can... Hopefully, they'll stir your imagination. If you like, take some of the ideas, use them to generate your own. I want to start on income and spending before we moving on, move on to the whole idea of cleaning out your closet and your garage because reassessing the way that we spend and save is about taking on a life rhythm as opposed to a single simplifying activity. A single simplifying activity like getting rid of stuff, that's great, it's helpful, it's part of this practice, but let's start with the actual rhythm of income and divestment. In the weeks to come, we'll explore more ideas about simplifying your possessions. For now, let me offer some broad principles to hopefully begin to stir our hearts and minds in the right direction. Now, these ideas presume a working budget. If you don't have one, Or if you sort of did at one point, but you don't remember if you do anymore, and if you do, you're certainly not honoring it, don't worry. The plan is to have an additional podcast where my wife Abby is going to talk through budgeting, something she's done for lots of people over the years, which would be awesome. She's by far the most organized and frugal person I've ever known. This is great for making a budget. These, what I'm about to give you guys, are ideas to consider before we get to the spreadsheet Proper And hopefully it will motivate you once you get down to making a new budget or organizing a budget. First, you've got an income of some kind. Relatively big or relatively small, steady or unpredictable. Money comes in somehow and you spend it. So let's begin here. Your income arrives. Don't spend anything. The first thing that happens is a surgical dissection of those funds. A planned, disciplined amount goes to the church. This is not a tip. It is a self-sacrificial gift of generosity. Like Cam said a a, a minute ago, the idea is that in a healthy family, everyone pitches in. If you go to a different church, that's where you pitch in. It's not random. It is a planned portion of your income with every paycheck. Most of us, or many of us, I should say, start with the whole 10% paradigm, which is based on this biblical paradigm of tithing. But you can start higher if you like. You You certainly shouldn't stop at 10%. Another portion that you designate goes immediately to justice. Maybe it could be sponsoring a kid. That's a great and easy thing to do. Maybe a recurring donation to a charitable cause that you believe in, local or abroad. Maybe throwing in on someone's adoption fund, something like that. There's, there's certainly no shortage of opportunities. But the idea is that you start with giving. It does not come out of the leftovers. It does not come last in the process. You begin with generosity and justice from the outset. Next, you've got bills and grown-up stuff. Now, bills to pay, adulthood, all that. Thing is, not all bills are bills that you need to pay. I mean, you know, honor your obligations and everything. Let me explain what I mean by that. So often I've heard adults lament their inability to afford this or that thing because of bills. But when pressed, a significant portion of those bills are for voluntary luxuries. There are, of course, necessities. It's a pretty short list. You've got like rent or mortgage and basic groceries to survive, electricity, gas, water, that kind of thing. It's no fun, but you pay for them. And then there are the optional luxuries, restaurants, takeout, Comcast, Netflix, Verizon, the gym, what have you. So go with me on this. There's grown-up bills and expenses like electricity and food for your children. Got to pay those, and you should. And then there are optional bills, like smartphone data and Hulu. The former goes in a different category than the latter. So you have a category for rent and groceries and all that, and then you have a separate category for the optional stuff, because that's money that you are spending on you. And remember, every time you make a financial decision to spend money on you, you are deciding not to spend that money on someone else. That's not wrong. But according to Jesus, it's not best. Think of Acts 20. We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's not inherently wrong to spend money on you. It can be fine. It can even be good. The question is, how much do you want to do that? And what is it doing to you? Years ago, I realized that I don't need to buy or own lots of clothes personally, so I have a few copies of the one outfit. When, I, when any part of it wears out, I replace it with only used clothes and only below a certain price point. My wife, Abby, has uh, a different standard of clothes. She's more interested than I am personally, but she has the same standard, the same ethical standard. So she only shops to replace damaged or worn out clothes, almost entirely used, and the only time she shops for clothes just because is if someone gives her a gift card or a Christmas present or something like that. And really, that's how we get almost every expendable thing that we just want to have. If I were to, like, go out and buy a movie or a book, that's the kind of things I would spend my money on, um, Abby would stop me and say, where did you get money for a book? And she has. And then I say, oh, I still had some gift card left over for Christmas last year. And I finally spent the last thing on this book. Get off my back, woman. It doesn't really happen like that. We're very gracious with one another. Or if I just said, just because. I just wanted this book and I had the money. It would be shocking to her and to me. I would surprise myself. We don't buy things for ourselves just because. Now, I have a ton of uh, movies personally, so people always come into my house and they think I'm lying about all this. They go, look at all these movies. This guy's not simplicity at all. But I kid you not, if you ask for nothing but movies for every gift-giving occasion for many, many years, you too can have a butt-ton of movies. Um, We don't buy things just because, even if we see an awesome deal or a clearance sale, my wife Abby often says, it's not a good deal if you don't need it. Now, of course... You don't have to do exactly that. But remember, you're doing surgery to an income, getting everything in budgetary place. Each portion you choose for yourself will not be used for generosity. So you have to choose thoughtfully and wisely. The portion designated for you should, I think, be reflective of your values, the things that enrich your life. So maybe if going out with friends is an important and enriching thing for you, your budget reflects that by setting aside more funds for that than for something else. But the point is that you're keeping track of all of it to have an ongoing mindful awareness of it so that you could see each portion you've set aside for yourself and then you set aside a bigger portion for generosity. The idea is to be able to know that you are spending more on others than on yourself by looking at your bank statements. So the way Abby and I break it down is we have an income, here's our giving to Van City, there's the, you know, like it or not electric bill or whatever, and here's what we choose to spend on ourselves, Netflix, the cell phone bill and Apple Music that kind of thing. And then we take another portion to divest in generosity. And we deliberately set that last number higher than the number of uh, than the amount that we are spending on ourselves. We spend X on ourselves, we spend Y on others. X is less than Y. And we can see that on a bank statement. Now, conversations like these are typically replete with theoretical concepts of heart posture. It doesn't matter how you spend your money, just the disposition of your heart when you do it. Like the number matters less. Respectfully, I disagree Yes, the heart posture matters, but setting specific numbers is a way to exercise a heart posture with a quantifiable discipline. Not unlike any other spiritual discipline, we practice prayer or Bible reading or worship and generosity and simplicity by disciplining ourselves with practice, not just when our hearts feel like it. And then over time, our hearts are shaped by that practice to desire that thing more Your generosity budget might be broken up into donations, a justice cause, or it could be just buying someone else dinner or coffee as a way to bless them. More money on others than on yourselves. And if there's any money after that or any extra for one reason or another, like a, I don't know, a tax refund or the whole stimulus thing that keeps happening, we just save it until we figure it out. Has anyone ever played the the card game Magic the Gathering? Anyone? In this whole room? Levi? Yeah, there we go. They were shy at first. Peter? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Why don't you all admit right away, man? Leave me hanging up here like I'm the only nerd in the whole room. In the card game Magic the Gathering, you can't um, summon a monster and then use it right away. It has something called summoning sickness. I'm going somewhere with this. And this, the idea is that this imposes on the player a certain limitation. They can't just get something and use it right away. I like to think of any extra income as having summoning sickness. We're never allowed to just spend it when it arrives. It goes into savings until we can thoughtfully and prayerfully consider a good way to use it. My wife Abby likes to say, just because you want it and you can comfortably afford it doesn't mean that you should buy it. People love to talk like, hey, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Then you can be more generous. And this creates a kind of permission for people to wait on generosity. I will start giving when I make a little bit more. When I have more, then I'll be generous. That's not necessarily true. The truth is that anyone can be generous. In the Bible, those with little are often depicted as mastering generosity, while well-off people are stereotypically the least generous. If you are not generous with a little... You will not be generous with a lot. Simplicity and generosity are spiritual disciplines. These people talking like they're waiting for their bank accounts to fill up, and then, then they'll be like Santa Claus. It's an unrealistic plan. You have to plan it now, whatever your financial season of life, practice it from poverty to wealth and everything in between, waiting for organic occasions to embrace simplicity is a bit like waiting for when you feel like fasting. That almost never happens. Sure, some people are, by nature, more generous than others, but the only way that all of us can learn to embody a lifestyle of consistent simplicity and generosity is to practice it in a deliberate and disciplined way. Think of it like this. People trying to make radical fitness changes, for example. They don't just casually skip a donut here and there. They make life decisions. They plan and they practice. They they say things like, I'm going to run on these days. I will go to the gym on these days with this routine. I will no longer eat these things. I will eat these things instead. I will eat this much. And on these days, economic divestment, generosity, simplicity works the exact same way. I am learning to understand my income and the way I use it as something that shapes me, for better or for worse, something that can either demonstrate the kingdom of God or keep me from it. So, in order to do counterformation, I will practice budgeting and economic divestment, generosity, and simplicity as a spiritual discipline for the sake of the kingdom. I know what I make, I know how I spend it, so this portion goes to me for these reasons, and this portion will go elsewhere, to the church, to the poor, to my community for justice. And I am learning to do this thoughtfully and consistently, and I can see it in action on my bank statement. When you choose to practice generosity, you are, in a sense, setting an income on a table and dividing it into portions for others. I believe that if we do this in such a way that we actually experience the feeling of I could have more for me, but I choose not to, we will be shaped by that decision every time. We will realize that we actually need less than we thought we did, and we'll experience more freedom And we can find out for ourselves if Jesus was telling the truth when he said it was more blessed to give our things away than to keep them for ourselves. And that inevitably leads to decisions that give way to more simplicity, which in turn gives way to more room for generosity. To end, let me tell you guys a weird story. From time to time, I'm invited to teach or lecture at other churches or classes and simplicity is often the topic I'm asked to present. For a while, part of my material was to talk about a Criterion Collection Godzilla Blu-ray box set. Fifteen movies, beautiful packaging, everything's remastered, extensive bonus features. I realize that this sounds very silly, probably to most, if not all of you, but I've loved these movies since I was a kid, and now I watch them with my kids. It's a very special thing in my life. Technically, I had the money to buy this thing, but there oh, yeah, There it not look great. I had the money to buy this thing, but I did not buy it. And as silly as it sounds with this particular example, it did something to me to feel that, to choose to divest that money that I could spend on myself elsewhere instead. So I told that story from time to time, and I told it in a lecture at another church last year. Afterward, uh, I did not know this, but an older gentleman, gentleman that was in the class he asked a friend of mine for my address, and he just ordered that box set, and it showed up at my house. I think that this is me uh, opening the mail. I could not believe it. It's huge, too. I had no idea it was so big. Um, now, I, you may not believe me. I had never intended anyone to buy me anything with that story, and I told it half a dozen times. Really buying it kind of ruins the story. <laughs> And I do not believe that this gift was some kind of reward for me not buying. Like, look, I did this, and God blessed me, and I got the Godzilla movies. How ridiculous. Instead, it reminded me of the power of generosity. This dude spent some, I think it was like $180, maybe $200 on a stranger just because. I've never officially met the guy. When I asked a friend why he did such a thing, I'll never forget this. She said, he's just like that. He does it all the time. And I was so inspired and encouraged to see generosity in action. It's actually fairly easy to get up here and rattle off about it for about 45 minutes or whatever this is. But my joy eclipsed my excitement for the actual thing, those 16 Godzilla movies. And I kid you not, whenever I sit down to watch one of them with my kids, I always think of Jesus' words and how blessed it was for that dude to give rather than receive, he's just like that. He does it all the time. And I thought, my God, I want the same thing to be said about me, not for my sake, but for the sake of the kingdom, because it inspired me for the sake of Jesus and his teaching that someone would follow him so well. Simple and small and silly a gesture as that is. Simplicity is not about design aesthetics or a minimalism fad. It is, I think personally, about taking a majority of what you could keep for yourself and choosing to give it away in order to cultivate a disciplined disposition of both generosity and contentment. That our joy might be complete in giving and that our giving might bring joy to other people. To do justice, to right wrongs, to combat evil, And to just bless a stranger for no good reason other than it's better to give than it is to receive. Simplicity is a way of disciplining myself to experience what Jesus taught. Giving stuff away is better than getting it. In everything, Jesus is teaching us that if we allow him to empower us to let go Of anything and everything that stands between us and him, we will be more free. And Jesus isn't calling us to misery. He's teaching us self-denial as the door through which we access what he called life and life to the fullest. It hurts sometimes. More often than not, it's difficult. Sometimes it seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So let's pray that it would be so in our own lives. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.